Now I'd like to encourage you to join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A great letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at Thessalonica. And he's answering questions for them that I believe all of us have. And in particular, in this segment of verses that we'll study this morning, he's going to help us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to offer us comfort. And in doing so, he's going to communicate one of our primary motivations. I was studying for this. I came across a story that I thought it was interesting. Carl McCunn was a likable Texan. You ever met a likable Texan before? Anybody? How many of you are a likable Texan? Do we, yep, there are some likable Texans in both services. He had a great love for the outdoors, and in the late 70s, he moved to Alaska, and he took a job as a trucker up there, and he made good money, he made a lot of friends while he was doing that, and he took up photography. He began to make plans to make an expedition, and his expedition really still bewilders everybody who hears it, because at the age of 35, he decided that he would embark on a five-month photographic expedition. you got to really like photography to do a five-month photographic expedition. He planned, he solicited advice, purchased all the supplies that he needed, and in the spring of 1981, he hired a bush pilot to fly him 70 miles northeast of Fort Yukon, where he would begin this expedition. He took two rifles with him. That makes a lot of sense. He took a shotgun with him. I understand that. He took 1,400 pounds of provision and 500 rolls of film. In fact, it seems as though he thought of everything that he could ever possibly need, except for he overlooked one minor detail. He had made no prearrangement with anyone to be picked up. Didn't dawn on him until August. And his hope was that maybe somebody, a friend, would notice that he had been missing and remember where he had gone. And so every day he would go out and as his supplies dwindled, he would do what he could and he would scan the skies hoping someone would come to rescue him and it never happened. In fact, it was a little over a year later that they found his body, and near his body was a 100-page diary. In that 100-page diary, he had documented the oncoming starvation, he had documented the elements, and perhaps most interestingly, he wrote this statement, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. Duh. I want to communicate to you this morning a reality for every believer. You do not need to put any effort into arranging your departure. Your departure has been arranged. But what you and I must do is plan for our arranged departure. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to help the believers at Thessalonica with. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll begin reading in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. He's writing to Christian people here, and he does not want them to be ignorant about this. Concerning them which are asleep. Asleep is a nice way, a kind way, an easy way for the Bible to communicate those that are dead in Christ. He's going to use that phrase in a moment. 
that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we understand in there, and we do, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He does not want us to be ignorant of what one commentator said is perhaps the most neglected doctrine in the modern church, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Use your imagination for just a moment. Imagine you're having a regular day at home. Maybe you're having a regular day in the office and then without any warning you find yourself immediately in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with a new body. Experiencing an entirely new realm in your consciousness. Jesus is there, friends are there, loved ones are there who have gone on before and you find yourself in the midst of an innumerable host. Surrounded by what I believe to be the angelic choir and you are focused on your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who returned just as he promised he would. For you see, the doctrine that is set before us this morning is not something that is up for negotiation. The Apostle Paul is not trying to argue with anybody about this. He is communicating fact. Jesus himself, as he comforted the disciples at the conclusion of the upper room, spoke to them in John 14, 3, and he said this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, note this from Jesus, who cannot lie, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted the believers at Thessalonica to grasp. In fact, he uses the very plain language, I do not, it is not my will, it is not my desire that you would be ignorant of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whenever the Apostle Paul planted a new church, whenever the Apostle Paul was surrounded by brand new believers, he communicated unto them the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, to the believers at Corinth, he writes this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two: in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Even to the brand new believers, Paul was introducing the details concerning the rapture, the snatching away of believers. Never in life is being snatched away looked at as a happy occurrence. But when we understand what is being communicated in the Bible, we grasp the reality that it is our ultimate comfort. You say, Pastor, I've read the Bible from cover to cover multiple times. I've memorized three quarters of the New Testament. All of that is impressive. You say, and in all of my deep study and in all of my reading, I've never come across the word rapture. Why are you throwing this word at me, rapture? In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we read this, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Caught up. That is the Latin word when you do a little etymology, 
rapturo. It literally means exactly what is communicated there. Caught up, snatched away. That's where we get the word that we use, rapture. It is the snatching away. It is the catching up of those believers which alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. The command to us is to be ready at every moment. This is not something that people were ignorant of in the early days of the church. Jesus himself said, I will come again. The Apostle Paul is articulating this as fact. Peter himself said in his letter, 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The believer should be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ and living for Jesus Christ at the same time. John, writing his letter, said this in 1 John 2, 18, Little children, it is the last time. As we read the book of Revelation, which we know to be a study of very many end-time events, here's what we read over and again as the Lord is speaking. In Revelation 3, 11, He says, I come quickly. In chapter 22, in verse 7, He says, Behold, I come quickly. Five verses later, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Again, eight verses later, he says, Surely I come quickly. And John, as he's pinning these words, shouts back at the end of the book of Revelation, Amen. Even so, come. We're ready for it. We're looking for it. Come now, Lord Jesus. That's the heart of John as he shouts out. You see, for the believer, death, or as we might think of it, the end, if it's the rapture or death, opens the doorway to eternity with the Lord. It's how we are rooted in our faith, and therein we find one of our primary motivations, Jesus is coming again. As we read those verses a moment ago, one phrase stood out to me, and I want to help you grasp what is being communicated. He tells us about those that are asleep, those that have already died. He comes back and he says they are the dead in Christ. All of us are aware of what we quote unquote would call the end. I referenced a moment ago. That's sure. It's coming. Every human being on the face of the earth has an innate awareness of life after death. You say, well, pastor, that cannot be true because I have met people who are rejectors of God. I've met people who are rejectors of truth. The Bible lets us in on this. Back in the Old Testament, Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. That phrase in there, he hath set the world in their heart, when you study it out, communicates, he has set the reality of eternity into the hearts of men. And so I can unequivocally say to you, anybody who says they don't believe in life after death is merely suppressing the truth, just like they would suppress the truth of the Creator in Romans chapter 1. And yet for the believer, one of the greatest delights that we have in all of Christianity is the awareness of life after death, the dead in Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 8 again. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The Apostle Paul has just communicated very deep and practical doctrine to us. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord for 
a believer, Jesus Christ made this amazing claim. God incarnate said this in John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Though by everybody's assessment, he is humanly speaking dead, I say to you, said Jesus, he is alive. That's like Paul's words when he said to the believers in Philippi, in essence, for me to live is Christ and to die is even better than that. His exact terminology is that it is far better. It is exceedingly better to be with Christ than to be here and now. And sometimes we speak words of comfort in seasons of loss. And they might even feel flippant in the moment to say you realize that they're happy and they're whole in the presence of the Lord. And those words sometimes ring hollow due to the pain that we are feeling. But when we really establish in Scripture that the Apostle Paul teaches us inspired by the Holy Spirit, it truly is exceedingly better to be with the Lord than to be here. He'll go on, the Apostle Paul, and he'll say to you, the reason that it's better is because to depart this place is to be with Christ. Back in 2 Corinthians again, he says, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He is communicating his heart's desire. The Apostle Paul thought a lot about death. He was not a morbid man. He was a man aware of his future. And so he says in these verses, I'm not reticent about looking at my future. I am not overwhelmed with anxiety and fear as I look ahead. In fact, I say to you, I am willing rather to be absent from this body because of what it communicates and what it means. I will be present with the Lord. That truly is better. Why? Because we'll be in eternity. In heaven, do you realize some beautiful truths like we'll recognize each other? In heaven, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In presence, we will, in heaven, we'll be in his presence and enjoying. We'll be reunited. We'll be free from sorrow. We'll be free from sin and pain. No longer will there be death. No longer will we ever even sadly have to contemplate a moment when we'll say goodbye. We'll no longer have to anticipate or look forward to the coming of Christ. We will be experiencing by sight what we once held on to only by faith. I love the thought that is uncovered in these verses. In fact, he says, as I referenced a moment ago in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now what he's just communicated here is pretty deep doctrine. And you get to sound really smart if you say things like, I want to communicate unto you raptural sequencing. That sound really smart. Here's some raptural sequencing. Sounds like maybe I studied and like actually put some time into this. Eschatological events. Does that do anything for you? Maybe. Here's what Paul is saying. There's going to come a very real moment in time, and he says, we have this by the word of the Lord. This is not something we're guessing at. This is something we know. 
We know the source is the Lord. We know this is to be certain. There is going to come a moment in time where the Lord Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will he bring with him. There is also going to be a generation of Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture. And in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, they're going to be snatched away, caught up, and in the presence of the Lord, surrounded by an innumerable host, and their loved ones will be there. How do we know it? Because he's even told us about the sequence of events. He says, at the trump, when the Lord returns with a shout and the voice of the archangel, I wish I knew what the Lord was going to shout. I don't know what it is, but I'm certain it's going to be victorious. When he shouts, the dead in Christ are going to go first. That's raptural sequencing. You will not prevent them which are asleep. That communicates you will not precede them which are asleep. And you say, why doesn't it just say precede? There it is. Precede them which are asleep. They're already there. All of us have stood in a cemetery somewhere at some time. Under some canopy and near a hole in the ground. We've stood there with the weight of emotions on us. We've stood there flooded by memories. And the fact is, we have been aware that in a moment or in a few minutes, maybe it's just an hour or two, that casket's going to be lowered into the ground. And we leave in that singular location all of the mortal remains of this one that we have loved and that we have cared for. And here is what the scripture is articulating. There is going to come a moment in time where that person that we have loved and left there in that place is going to leave that very place and they are going to be swallowed up in victory. They are going to be raised incorruptible and they are going to beat us to where the Lord is and then we are going to be with Him. And I think to myself, is God not an incredible heavenly Father because He makes everything fair? Let me just ask a quick question. Here are your two options, believer. You can either experience physical death or you can go when the Lord Jesus returns in the rapture. All right, now, this is dangerous territory. How many of you prefer raptured out or you want to go through physical death? Physical deathers, raise your hand. Rapture, that's what I was thinking. Okay, so God our always understanding Heavenly Father realizes, okay, there's going to be a generation of people who experience the rapture, and that's better. And there are going to be those who are already dead in Christ, and I realize they don't get to experience the rapture in the sense that the generation does. So what he does is he makes everything fair. He says to all of you that are dead in Christ, you get to go first. It's just like a parent making things good. Is that okay? You go first? All right. At least we go first. And then we which are alive and remain are snatched away and caught up. And you say, Pastor, how fast does this happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And you say, well, have you ever studied out the twinkling of an eye? I have, and I have come to this deep understanding. It's fast. That's what. It's an instantaneous transformation where death is swallowed up in victory and death has no more power and we are all together in the presence of the Lord, but the dead in Christ, they go first. So in direct answer to those who were concerned about those who had gone on before, Paul says, you will see them again. And in fact, at the rapture, they're going to go first and you're going to be there. I don't believe that we are going to have to scan the horizon for our loved ones. I think that God in heaven has the ability 
to put us with them when we get there. I don't think that I'm going to be way over East Asia somewhere. I'm here for the rapture. I'm pretty sure of it. God willing, I'm on your side. I'm a rapturer, not a deather. And Christy's going to be on the other side of the planet. And I'm going to have to pass through everybody. And it's going to be like me in the lobby on a Sunday. Like, yes, yes, what? Yes, okay. I just want to get to my wife. I don't think it's going to be like that. We're going to be together in the presence of the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise first. You say, so what you're telling me, pastor, is when I stood at that cemetery and I cried and I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders and this sorrow that felt like it would never relent, you mean to comfort me with the reality that that person who I knew and loved is coming out of that place and they won't be chained there forever exactly? That's what I mean. Well, what about me? Well, the Bible uses this phrase, those which are alive and remain. There will be a generation of Christians who are alive at the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll plug the Sunday night study. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 right now. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I can say it to you this way. If we die... We're okay, because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. If we don't die, and we are a part of those which are alive and remain at the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're okay, because we will immediately be changed into our glorified, incorruptible state, and we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, or a believer, if you die or are raptured, you're going to be okay. You say, now hold on a second, Pastor. What about the terrors of the tribulation? If you are in Christ, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Let me just communicate to you this simple fact. We'll be gone during the tribulation. In fact, if you study the book of Revelation, you'll note that from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 19, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church is absent in those chapters. You'll read of the church early in the book of Revelation. You'll read of it again in Revelation chapter 19, but nowhere in between. This fits perfectly with the promise of Jesus Christ to the church age, which he articulates in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He says this, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. In other words, if I were going to woodenly translate that to communicate it to you, he says, I will take you away from the testing that will cover the earth. I'll snatch you up out of there. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, coming in just a chapter, he writes this in verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Even more specifically, he writes in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You won't be here. What I'm saying to you is this. If you are a believer, you have it good. I have it terrible. My life is so hard. I have to come to this church and sit here and listen to you surrounded by these people. I get two of the three of those things. One, I'm not in on. I have it so hard, I'm a believer. Let me just say it again. If you die, 
you're okay. You're with him. If you are alive and remain until the rapture, you're okay. But pastor, I look at the landscape of the world. It's terrifying. It's calamitous. It's savage. Everything will come crashing down. You're okay. You have been saved from the wrath that is to come. And there is a seven-year period, which we do not have time to study at this moment, where beyond your imagination, terrible things will happen, and you will be with the Lord. And I will be with the Lord. It's a wonderful comfort to realize that. Now, unbeknownst to you and me, because all we know is chapter and verse divisions, there would have been no chapter and verse division between what he's just told us about the rapture of Jesus Christ and chapter 5. But he begins chapter 5 by this, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Wouldn't it stand to reason that the first question from the believers at Thessalonica, when they've just been told about the, the, the rapture, and they've just been told they'll be reunited with those who are dead in Christ, their next question would be, so when does that happen? And he says, brethren, listen, you don't have any need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Paul has just broken the world up into Two different sections. There are the saved and the unsaved. There are, in his exact terminology, children of the day and children of the night. There are those that remain in darkness and there are those that are in the light. If you even study those verses out, you'll note his use of personal pronouns even goes back and forth. He breaks them up in segments. You, ye, I, we, they, them. He is making it very clear that there is a great distinction between believers and non-believers, between those who remain in darkness and those who are in the light, between those who are children of the day and those who are children of the night. And he says something very plain. You, based on what I have just told you, that Jesus is coming again, even to the raptural sequencing, I say to you, you who are children of the light or children of the day, act like it. Live like it. You have no need that I tell you we don't know when it's going to happen. You already are aware it comes as a thief in the night. In fact, the moment will come where they will say peace and safety, and yet this calamity and destruction will come upon them like the travail of a woman having a child. That will happen to them. But you and I and we need to understand that it should not overtake us as a thief in the night, not in the sense that we can set a date and know when it's happening, but in the sense that we are always perpetually ever looking for it to occur. Shouldn't take us by surprise. We should be looking for that moment. In fact, it could truly happen now. Or now, or now, we could stay here for several hours just going, now, or now. It is an imminent event. There is no 
There's no thing, no item, no box left to be checked on the prophetic calendar according to Scripture for the rapture to occur. It could literally happen now or in two minutes or in 20 minutes or tomorrow or before kickoff or before you hit the office tomorrow. You and I, literally speaking, honestly speaking, we may be in heaven tomorrow. And that's just not the worst thought, is it? We could be in heaven this afternoon. But we really don't live with that as a reality, do we? We could be in heaven even now. I can remember as I grew up, we had two garage, two single car garage doors. You came down the hill into our driveway, into the garage. My mom's garage was on the left of the driveway. My dad's garage was on the right of the driveway. And I, as a child, could distinguish between the garage door openers from inside the house. Do you know what I'm talking about? That hum that enters into the house when you hear the garage doors opening. We had a basement. Basements are wonderful things. I reference this like two weeks in a row. I don't know why basements are on my mind, but we had a basement. Now, I would receive assignments as a small child, things like clean up, don't punch your brother in the face, don't wreck the house, sweep out the garage, chores that were absolutely overwhelming and miserable. No child should have had that placed upon them, but I did. I did. I can remember moments in my home where you would be doing something in the basement or you would be doing something in the kitchen or you would have had an assigned chore and you would hear the hum of a garage door opening. And we were so good or so devious as kids, we could distinguish between left garage and right garage. Left garage was closer, the sound was a little louder, and if it was my mom's side of the garage, no worries, we'll talk our way out of this. There's no real physical repercussions for not having done what we're doing. But I will tell you, on more than one occasion, you would hear the right garage door open, and you would think, Jesus Come quickly. I mean, real quickly. Now, Lord Jesus, now. Silently, you would begin to scurry around doing everything you could do to set things right because the ramifications of right garage versus left garage were drastic. You were moving and you were active because you knew what was coming. With just the slightest warning, you began to get busy. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. I cannot tell you when it'll be. I can't say, hey, you have till Tuesday at 12.13. I can't tell you you have till Thursday afternoon. I can't tell you that, but what I can tell you is it's going to happen. I can even tell you about what's going to go on when it happens. The dead in Christ are going to rise, be in their glorified body. They're going to be there in the air. Then we which are alive and remain are going to be caught up. We're going to be snatched away, raptured up to be with him and with them in the air. And I happen to believe we'll be accompanied by an angelic choir. Horizon to horizon, angels everywhere. I mean, it stands to biblical reason. They were there at the birth of Jesus Christ, correct? They were there when Jesus ascended. The angels were there. I believe that they will be there, and the voice of the archangel is referenced. It will be there. And the Lord will shout a victorious shout, and we'll all be together in this place, and it's real. I can't tell you when it will happen, but I can tell you that it will happen, and that's your garage door buzzer. There's your vibrating garage door going up. 
You're a child of the day. Act like it. You're not a child of darkness. You're not a child of the night. You don't have the freedom to live how you want and do what you want. You and I have to do what has been assigned to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think this is spoken any more clearly than in Romans chapter 13 where we read this. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Why would I live like that? Here's why. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. You can't sleep on this another day. Your priorities need to be adjusted to eternity. You need to be more concerned about earthly purity and holiness. You say, I'm so unmotivated for eternal priorities and earthly purity. How about this? There's going to come a moment where the trump will sound, Jesus will shout, and the archangels will sing, and we're all going to be with him in the air. You better get after it. You can't live for yourself. You can't be dominated by selfishness. You can't always capitulate to the flesh. You can't live in darkness. That's not who you are. You're a child of the day. You're a child of the light. Act like it. That's a beautiful truth. I love that the apostles communicating this. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow we'll just be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. One wrote this. The possibility of receiving the approval of Christ should make us throw caution to the wind and live passionately for His glory alone. Reckless, abandoned kind of faith. The fact that we will receive the approval of Christ and hear, well done. And I know that people talk about, all I want is to make it into heaven. And we're going to study heaven next week. And it's one of the greatest studies that you can do. And we think to ourselves, you know what, I just want to make it in. I won't care when I get there. But everything in Scripture says, yes, you will. We're told about rewards, and you think, well, I don't need those rewards. When you get to heaven, you're going to care. You say, but nobody's sad in heaven. There's no sorrow. But there is a moment where all tears are wiped away. And I happen to believe some of those tears are going to be from people who knew better and have to look back and realize they squandered every moment of their life And they don't have much to offer to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you, now is the time to set it right. There's an old preacher. He's an old commentator. I'm a weirdo because I like some of that. I like the language. I like how they paint visual images with their words for me. There's one and he wrote this. He said, one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is a dove. He said, when I was a boy... For the magnificent sum of one English penny, one could purchase a platform ticket and go on to the platform of the local railway station. He said, those were the days of steam engines, and because our town was on the main line from the city of London to the country of Wales, it was a very busy station. It was a favorite pastime of mine, he wrote, to purchase a platform ticket and spend an enjoyable morning in the summer watching the trains. They would come roaring into the accompaniment of clouds of steam, blowing up whistles, banging of doors, and the rush of passengers. Then off it went with the loud huffs and puffs of the mighty engine up front. 
One day, he said, I was idling away with the morning when I found myself down by the far end of the main platform and I came across some wicker baskets filled with doves and pigeons. A friendly porter saw me eyeing them and he said to me, those are homing doves and pigeons, son. He said, we're loading them on trains going to different parts of the country and sometime next week, they will all have arrived at their different destinations. At precisely the same moment, they will all be released, and no matter where they are, they will head straight for home. It's kind of a race, you see. The one that gets home first will be the winner. He then wrote in his little journal, that's it, of course. The Holy Spirit is the dove of God. He has a strong homing instinct. When he is received into the human heart, he brings that homing instinct with him. He heads us toward home. At the time of the rapture, he will simply pick us all up, living or dead, and take us there to be with him with an accompanying shout, trump, and voice. And he said this, now today is the moment to choose the right side. God's holding back to give us that chance. We have to take it or we have to leave it. But we're heading home. In a world where we feel fear and anxiety and fatigue. And in a world where we're told we're aliens and we're misfits, we acknowledge, according to the very language of Scripture, we're just strangers and pilgrims merely passing through. And heaven is so great that even major life decisions were made on faith based on a city whose builder and maker was God. Because though we cannot, with our human minds tainted by the curse of sin, even begin to fathom the greatness and the opulence and the peace and the rest of heaven, and we cannot begin for a moment to realize the victory of the second coming of Jesus Christ, Scripture is begging us to come to the reality that that pain that you and I feel, that angst and that fear that controls us, has no sway over what God is doing. And there is going to come a moment where this life ceases to exist. So why do we live so much for this life? He's coming again. It should motivate us. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.